lies, 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 Well, good evening, one and all. Yes, this is us. This is Box 39. We're back. Your weekly local community magazine radio programme. I am every single part of me, Bill Lawrence. And I'm joined as ever on my right-hand side by the rather uh, old-looking Ian Tallentire. And on my left-hand side by the rather young-looking Mike Harwood. Thank you for that. Good evening. And we're here at the desk in Studio One at the Mighty Colm Radio Towers here on the fourth floor. And, uh, as always, again, we're dipping into Box 39, which is Calm Radio's deep and rather mysteriously uh, labelled community treasure chest. There it is. It's a huge, great uh, chest with a great big lid. And we can open any particular pocket or drawer within it. And then when we open those pockets or drawers, we pull out stories, features, guests and music from any topic that we choose. So, Ian... What compartment in Box 39 will you be opening for us in a few minutes? Well, good evening, uh, Bill, and good evening, Mike. And looking out across uh, Essex from up here on the fourth floor, we're looking down upon all you lovely listeners this evening. Well, on a recent show... It sounds like so. It's very... uh Radio 2. I decided to change it to make it slightly more upbeat and more Radio 2 this evening. Fantastic. Did you think it worked, Mike? I'm going for a more basic... uh, I'm going to go for a cone radio style. Okay, well, I'll get back to cone radio. On a a couple of shows ago, we looked at secrets, so I thought it'd be interesting to look at something we often associate with secrets. So the theme for this week is lies. That's dishonesties and deceits, falsehoods and fabrications. Mike, tell us. Are we going to be lying this week? We certainly are. Bill will tell six lies during the course of the show. See if you can spot them. All will be revealed at the end of the show. Well, I'm looking forward to that. But first of all, uh, we've got Adrian Cohen. He's with us. He's over on the other side of the studio um, in our, what we like to call our musicology area. It's right over there in the corner near the coffee machine. So, Adrian, uh, what can we be looking forward to this week? Yes. Uh, hello, Bill. Hello, Ian. And hello, Mike. Well, yes, I've got some interesting music tonight. I've got five tracks that I'm selected, each of which has a connection with Colchester or the towns and villages around Colchester, which I think are going to come as a bit of a surprise to our listeners. Uh, Certainly, uh, I've enjoyed putting this little uh, set of five songs together. So uh, we'll see. Thanks, Adrian. More of our award-winning music later during the show, along with a chat with Colchester resident Rosemary with her memories of her wartime childhood and a few other surprises, including a look at the massive deception plan that lay at the heart of the Allied success at D-Day and some 45-year-old parsley and all your emails and texts as well. That's right. And our new house band, Ausgang Exit Reborn, are here as per their contractual obligation. And, of course, Bill will be telling... Six lies hidden amongst his truths. Can you spot them? So let's open the box and start with our first piece of music. Over to you, Adrian.
It's a little-known fact that Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart of Eurythmics fame started out as teachers at Philip Morant School in Colchester. Annie Lennox taught art and craft because the school already had Kate Bush as the music teacher. Dave Stewart taught woodwork and made his first guitar while his students ran laps around the football pitch. It's also a little-known fact that Lennox and Stewart are now back at the school working as supply teachers now that the Eurythmics are no longer famous. David Stewart is teased mercilessly by the 21st century Colchester youth because of his funny little 1980s beard. listening to Bill Lawrence, Ian Talentire and Mike Harwood on Colm Radio and Adrian Cohen, 106.6 FM, out of box 39, Bill Lawrence. You're listening to the sound of our house band, our new house band, Ausgang Exit Reborn and this is Trinkets from Trinidad and Tobago. And I am contractually obliged to say they are sponsored by Barry's Burger Van on the A1044 by Stanway Golf Course. So, welcome to everyone listening. Welcome to everyone in the studio. And we've got a special guest coming up as well. Jill Ball, she's on her way. She's just texted me so that the bus has just left Colchester. So, we're hoping to see her in a very short amount of time. Now, it's our 2000th show tonight. Did you know that, fellas? No. 2000? Have been around so. that long? Yeah, and we just received a text from Donna in Norwich, yeah. and uh, she says, yeah. congratulations on your 2000th show. Uh, look, she yeah. says, I've listened to every single one of them, and the bath's getting quite cold now. Yeah, yeah. If I read on, it says um, she's wearing her Ausgang Exit to Reborn t-shirt at the Jubilee Pub, St. Leonard's Road, Thorpe Hamlet. Right. Usually she uh, listens to our great show while she's ironing, but tonight she's uh, all over the place. She's on the road, as I say. She's on the now. road. Our theme tonight is lies. According to myth, a young George Washington, the first president of the USA, confessed to cutting down a cherry tree by proclaiming, I cannot tell a lie. Politicians and lies? Wow. Well, we've already heard tonight's theme is the word lies, isn't it? And all the negative connotations associated with it. So, Ian. I don't know why you're being so negative, fellas. I mean, what is wrong with a person or animal assuming a horizontal resting position on a supporting surface, as in the phrase, the body lay face downwards on the grass? And let's not forget its synonyms. Recline, recumbent, prostrate, supine, prone, stretched out, sprawled, reposed, lounge. <laughs> Does he know well, all these words? He's, he's very impressive sometimes, yeah, isn't he? but uh, not that often. I, I would just suggest that... Uh, at that age, you just, you just learn them all, don't you, at that yeah, age? Absolutely. Yeah. I suggest that uh, you're being obstructive and missing the obvious point and the definition we're truly seeking purposefully. Sorry, Mike. I believe you're being blinkered in your definition. I know exactly where you want me to go with this. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with the use of the word in a statement about something remaining or being kept in a specified state, as in... The Abbey lies in ruins today. Oh, clever, yeah. But uh, next you're going to tell me it can be used as a noun. Oh, yes, I am. He was familiarising himself with the lie of the streets, as in the description of the way, direction or position in which something lies. Do you know what? There are times, listeners, when you can do nothing but dislike my co-host. We have a perfectly good topic, and like an attacking Colchester United player, he sidesteps every attempt to start a logical debate. Uh, I'm just going to step in there because uh, I can't have you two gentlemen arguing about it. and That's not what we want to do. So, uh, shall we have a little bit more from Ausgang Exit uh, Reborn? Or shall we continue with our chat? I think we continue with our chat. Tell you what. You know what they say, all is fair in love and war. They tell that. Now, is that one of the biggest lies? Ian, you've got a story about that. Go on. I have, because uh, when the Trojan Paris absconded with Helen, wife of the Spartan king, war exploded. It had been raging for ten long years. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> did, did your little fingers do something on the desk there? <laughs> 
It had been raging for ten long years when the Trojans believed they'd finally overcome the Greeks. Little did they know the Greeks had another trick up their sleeves. That's right. In a stroke of genius, the Greeks built an enormous wooden horse with a hollow belly in which men could hide. After the Greeks convinced their foes that this structure was a peace offering, the Trojans happily accepted it and brought the horse and the house, well not the house, but the horse, within their fortified city. That night, as the Trojans slept, Greeks hidden inside snuck out the trap door. Then they proceeded to slaughter and decisively defeat the Trojans. Yeah, the Trojan horse is also the source of the nickname Trojan for computer programs called malware that can infect computer systems. Many of these harmful programs appear to be useful or merely harmless. In this way, they convince users to install and run them, not realising what harm they can do once they're in there. Do you know, I think Ausgang Exit Reborn have got Trojans in them. What was that chaos that we've just gone through? I've just been over and I've had a bit of a stiff word with Henry there and with Big Sue on the trombone. You know, they just can't play that. I think it was an added uh, added piece of drama myself. Well, I think we should go back to our man who subverts the music from within. Adrian, what's going to be the next piece of music? Blues guitarist and singer Artie Blues Boy White was the Labour MP for Colchester up until 2010 when he was narrowly beaten by Conservative Will Quince, not on the popular vote, but as a result of a controversial Electoral College block decision that was dominated by delegates who preferred jazz funk, R&B and soul to the blues, even after Will Quince had equivocated about his love of jazz funk in a live interview on Russian TV. First elected MP for Colchester in 1979, Artie White had defied the Thatcher landslide by standing on a simple four-point manifesto. One, free Chicago blues for all adults. Two, free Detroit blues for senior citizens. And three, restoration of the free milk for primary school children removed in 1970. Children had to have good access to food during World War II. The British government introduced food rationing to ensure that this happened and specific information regarding children and food consumption was issued in the Ministry of Food pamphlet. Great emphasis was put on fresh vegetables, oily fish and acceptable substitutes when certain food was unavailable. If oranges were difficult to acquire, blackcurrant syrup for those under two years old and rosehip syrup for those over two years were suggested. Raw turnip was also suggested for maintaining a healthy body. Colchester resident Rosemary recently spoke to Box 39 about how she remembers life in the war as a young girl, with her father away fighting, and even more than 70 years later, her memories are still powerful and still moving. Many men came here as soldiers, many men will pass this way. My name is Rosemary George. During the war, I lived in Reading in Berkshire. Well, my dad went over on D-Day 
he jumped into deep water with full kit. A soldier in front of him couldn't swim, but Dad helped him, but unfortunately the soldier drowned. Dad was in the Royal Engineers. The Normandy beach where he was was called Aramanche. I remember that clearly. And I think he must have gone over as a Royal Engineer to help at the Mulberry Harbour. And I'll just say that we as a family went over when they were commemorating D-Day the 6th of June. Four years ago? It could have been, yes. Because um, Richard, my son, and I walked on the beach where Dad must have walked. Uh, Did your dad used to talk about it much to you? Never. It's funny that they didn't talk much. No, he didn't want to talk about it. No, 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 he didn't. He ended up in Brussels, I know that. And Mum and I went over to Brussels. Yeah. We didn't know anything because he'd never told us, really. But you remember him coming back? Oh, I remember him coming back. Yeah. He brought he brought his chocolate ration to me and it was an inch thick, I remember. And I ate it all because we'd never had any chocolate in the war. And I was so sick that... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I do remember all that. So who else was in your family? I'm an only child, unfortunately. And there was mum and dad. Well, not dad, really, because he was never there. When the war was going on, you were a schoolgirl? I was. I remember coming out of school as an eight-year-old. I was quite young, and I with a friend, and I can remember a German plane was flying overhead. I knew it was German because there was a cross on it. Well, when you're only eight, you things like that stick in your mind. And I can remember this plane went over, and we knocked at people's doors uh, for them to let us in, but. Nobody would. And at last I got home and then I heard later that the German plane had bombed a shop in Reading called Wellsteads. That stuck in my mind and it was flattened to the ground. I remember that well. So I do remember a sky that was full, full of English planes. It was black. I remember looking up at the sky and everything was black with these planes. And I think they were on their way for D-Day. Do you think it could have been that? Could well have been. Yeah. So did you know about D-Day when it happened or did they, no. it was all kept quiet? I was, was quite young, so I didn't know what it was all about, really. So for you, how did the war affect you as a child then? Did it change anything? No, no, it didn't really. No, I do remember my mother joined the Red Cross and she used to machine dressing gowns out of blankets because there was nothing like that in the war. And I also remember, <laughs> remember we didn't know what a banana was because... Yeah. There was no bananas at all. But it really didn't affect me, the war. It was only not having my dad and he was gone so long. I do remember him going up to Copebridge in Scotland for a training, but I didn't know what that was all about. But I think it must have been about D-Day. That's all I can think of, really. So, the war was going on. You must have known you were at war, so that you were aware that you were at war. Yes. Did people talk about it all the time? Not a lot. No. No, they didn't. But you just saw lots more people in uniform about, I suppose, and you were told there's a war on. And mum in the Red Cross uniform. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, were there often soldiers coming back on leave? Did you see a lot of soldiers about? Not really. No. It was only my dad when he came home. And he... 
he was given a striped suit, navy blue, and he put it on, and I thought, oh, he's, he's very smart, my father. You, I mean, when you're tiny, it's, things don't sort of ring very much, you know? Only bananas and chocolate that I missed, really. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of people, my parents, they talk, always talk very fondly about the war, strangely enough, because they were both children during the war. Yeah. And they said people were nicer to each other. Do you think that was right? Yes, I think so. Yes, definitely. Yeah, people were really doing things for each other, which was wonderful, really. Mm. Yes. Can you remember that when you heard the war I was remember... Over? On the radio, Mr. Churchill, he said, the war is now ended. And I remember everybody in the street was cheering, you know? But I don't remember street parties and things like that. We didn't have it in our road. That's all I can remember. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? It was a long time ago. So I've been to Aramash. I take students to oh, Aramash every you? year, yeah. Ah. I take students to D-Day beaches for a week every year. I take 100 15-year-olds every year. Oh, so I've been to Aramanche many, many times. Really? Gosh, yeah. gosh. High up on the cliffs there, looking yeah. down, and you can see the Mulberry Harbour and the sea. Yeah. And then you go down the steps, down into the little town, and there's a little town square, isn't there? there? Yes. And yeah. But when we were there, that time when we walked on the beach, we went to a service that was being held above the beach. And that was lovely. And I do remember Richard Todd, the actor, he was there. He was apparently in the war. And I can remember seeing him in the front row of the service. <laughs> yeah, it was lovely. Gosh, yeah. Wow. I'm so glad we went. Because yeah. it showed my son Richard just where his grand he never knew his grandfather, but it showed him yeah. where my dad had walked. Connect, connect the generations there. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it was lovely. This is Ausgang Exit Reborn with no more free plastic bags at the corner shop. Delighted to say, and contractually obliged to also say that tickets are now available for Ausgang Exit Reborn's mini spring break tour, break tour of Norfolk Broads, playing a variety of holiday parks and uh, mini golf courses. So let's crack on, Mike. Yeah, I would like to state that the commonly held definition for the word lie is an assertion that is believed to be false, typically used with the purpose of deceiving someone. The practice of communicating lies is called lying, and a person who communicates a lie may be termed a liar. The classical liar has a hollow body, or sound chest, also known as a sound box or resonator, which in ancient Greek tradition was made out of turtle shell. Projecting from this sound chest are two raised arms, which are sometimes hollow and are curved both outward and forward. They are connected near the top by a crossbar or yoke. An additional crossbar fixed to the sound chest makes the bridge, which transmits the vibrations of the strings. The lyre is a string instrument known for its use in Greek classical antiquity and is similar in appearance to a small harp, but with distinct differences. In organology, lies are definitely, or sorry, they are definitely defined as yoke loops. See, I, I never played the lyre, but I did get to grade four on the classical Irish bagpipes. God, that's impressive, uh, Bill. Yeah, yeah I, I did have to start. My parents used to make me practice on my own in the dark on East Mersey Beach at, at night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to the topic in hand, lies. As we recall, there is the famous quote attributed to the Victorian British Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli. Lies, damn lies and statistics, which describes the persuasive power of numbers particularly the use of statistics to bolster weak arguments, is also sometimes colloquially used to doubt statistics used to prove an opponent's point. In ancient Greece, 
Recitations of lyric poetry were accompanied by lyre playing. The earliest picture of a lyre with seven strings appears in the famous sarcophagus of Hagia Triada within a Minoan <laughs> settlement in Crete. How does he know this The stuff? lyre of yeah. classical antiquity was ordinarily played by being strummed with a plectrum or a pick, like a guitar or a zither, rather than being plucked with the fingers as with a harp. The fingers of the free hand silence the unwanted strings in the chord. Well, now that's ed- interesting. Now your education is complete, fellas. Yeah, but a lyre with seven strings... Is that a fact, or is that uh, a uh, wild card put in by uh, uh, to, We couldn't uh, possibly say. Confuse us about... Well, you see, you, I, I, I'm just going to step in there, Mike, and take the words right out of your mouth and say uh, that pathological lying is also called... Are you ready for this? Go on, Pseudologica Fantastica. Or, which is easy for me to say. Or mythomania. Mythomania is so much easier to say. Yeah. I'll go for mythomania. It's all about compulsive lying. We would never do on this show, do we? Oh, wow. Or do we? Well, in 1910, one of the biggest hoaxes in history happened. It appeared that evidence of the missing link had been unearthed. The gap in the evolutionary, evolutionary, evolutionary story between ape and man. <laughs> Pieces of skull and jawbone with molars located in the uh, Piltdown Quarry in Sussex, England. And so the discovery of what was called Piltdown Man well, gained world renown. That's right. But uh, how many people know the lie behind Piltdown Man slowly and steadily unraveled? In the ensuing decades of a major discovery suggested Pitdown Man didn't fit in the story of human evolution. By the 1950s, tests revealed that the skull was only 600 years old and the jaw came from an orangutan. Ah, there you are, you see. Yeah, you didn't I, didn't that, know, did I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, some knowledgeable person apparently manipulated these pieces, including filing down and staining the teeth. Yeah, that's enormously clever, isn't it? Yeah. Well... Um, you know, there's been quite a lot of famous fakes, hasn't there? Uh, the one that really stinks in my mind is that Awesome Wells one. You remember War of the Worlds radio play, which uh, had people screaming and running from New York, and that was just a fake, wasn't it? That's it's right. The power of radio to create fakes. Yeah, I've got a personal uh, tale there. Um, when I was married to my ex-wife uh, from California, she uh, told me about her parents were um, having a little cuddle in a car in the countryside, heard the War of the Worlds were, um, and it was quite scary because it sounded real and they missed the opening a lot of uh, listeners missed the opening and uh, they panicked and joined um, queues of cars jammed on the motorways it was quite uh, quite something and there was a possible suicide but it's never been confirmed Goodness me do you know any fakes there Ian? Famous fakes? Uh, 1966 evidently Paul McCartney died and he was replaced by a lookalike but I always thought that was true <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> One thing I do know is true is that, do you remember crop circles? Because he can't sick. Do you yeah. remember crop circles? They still happen, don't they? I had a friend who was a teacher, and uh, he was a, a crop circle investigator in Norfolk. Lots of crop circles up in Norfolk. And uh, while I was having dinner around his house one night, and he said, I, I want to show you something. Took me upstairs to his bedroom, and uh, he said, look, on my carpet, there's a crop circle appeared on my carpet. Bonkers. Absolutely yeah. bonkers. Well, I'll tell you something that um, was true, but it was a lie, was um, the Hitler Diaries of uh, 1983. Sixty volumes of journals were written by uh, Adolf Hitler. Oh, no, they weren't. They were forged by Konrad Kujau. And uh, do you know what? They sold for two million pounds later. Well, let's have one more. Ian, I know you're a fan of uh, the, the McWhopper thing, aren't you? Burger King. Oh, that. It's like your second home. Yeah, 1998. Burger King created a Whopper specifically for left-handed people. No. So you'd have been all right. Yeah. I don't absolutely. believe it. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was invented on the 1st of April, but it was definitely <laughs> 1998. Oh, well, I hope they do something like that again. I, last time I had a, uh, a Burger King burger was at Kuala Lumpur Airport. Wow. I sat next to a nun to eat my burger. <laughs> was the burger leaning to the left? Last thing I had at Kuala Lumpur Airport was a Thai curry. Well, I think you were very lucky. It was much nicer than the burger. Look, let's go over to our man. Let's go over to Adrian. He sorts the fakes from the real gems. Adrian, Adrian, put that drink down. Thank you very much. And now, Adrian, who's in our musicology corner uh, this time? Come on. Let's have the next piece of music, Adrian. Go on, off you go. Complicated, well, I've grown to hate it. 
I never liked the taste of crow, but baby, I ate it. They tried to warn me. They said that you were ornery. So don't bring me those big brown eyes and tell me that you're sorry. Well, you might as well throw gasoline on a It's a little known fact that country and western music was invented in Wivenhoe and taken over to North America on the Mayflower in 1620 by a small five-piece band called the Wivenhoe Desperados who disguised themselves as Irish policemen heading for Boston and New York. While they started out singing songs about fishing on the River Cone, dreaming of a university being built to the north of Wivenhoe, and prescient songs about the demise of Colchester Town and the rise of Colchester United. Something about the journey and then the long trek down to the slave-owning southern states caused them to start singing about their dogs being dead, their problems with drink, their cheating spouses, and the myth of the lost cause of the Confederacy. Sidings, a BBC radio sitcom starring Arthur Lowe and Ian Lavender at the peak of their popularity on TV in Dad's Army at the time, with the supporting cast of comedy reliables Kenneth Connor and Liz Fraser from the box office busting Carry On films. It all sounds highly suspicious. <laughs> it was broadcast for two series in 1971 and 72 and spanned a total of just 22 half-hour episodes. Parsley Siding was a show set in a sleepy, out-of-the-way railway station on the main line between London and Birmingham and featured the tribulations of the station master and his staff. It was also a world of British rail slapstick, cartoon comedy voices and where sex was as smutty as innuendo was endemic. A surefire hit on paper, so why then did this long-forgotten comedy come off the rails and run out of steam? <laughs> Yet, despite its impressive pedigree, Parsley Sidings failed. As Monty Python was gaining increasing critical support on TV at the same time, Parsley Sidings seemed outdated and worn. The final episode of Series 2 contains the most extraordinary plot. News, Miss Simpkins. Uh -huh. Listen. This is to advise you that on Friday the 18th, Prince Abdul of Kazi will be travelling from Euston to Manchester and on his way will pass through your station. He's the oil king, isn't he? One of the richest men in the world. Oh. Not only has he oil fields and a string of racehorses, he even owns the Kazi National Railway. Oh, and he'll be stopping here? As comic misunderstandings abound, terrorists hijack a train at Parsley Sidings and take a member of an Indian royal family hostage, only to be saved by portly station master Arthur Lowe. I'm going to chase after Prince Abdul's train, of course. It's been hijacked. Who all too often appears to be drowning, not waving. The fictional Indian royal is given life with a grotesque blackface gusto from Kenneth Connor. It is most kind of British rail to provide me with such a helpful pair of guides. Oh, charmed, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, especially when one of them has such rare and intoxicating beauty. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> 
Over in Brixton and Ladbrook Grove, street tensions between immigrant community and working class whites were real and often painful at that time. But here in the middle class, sunlit village greens of Radio 4, listening commuter wives cooked New Zealand lamb chops and their commuter husbands imagined brushing against Liz Fraser, the parsley sidings station announcer. Me Too was still a full-fat generation away. So how much were those respected and well-loved comedians just taking the money, ensuring a few more pounds in their pension pots? It was a time when the British film industry fees were as limp as the jokes. But this was the well-worn route of BBC radio comedy from the 1940s onwards, and if sufficient shingle was thrown at the wall, something was bound to be good enough to stick. Not for the money, then. For the money. And audiences were guaranteed, as there were only four national radio stations, and local radio and commercial radio were still just dreams. It was a good profile, easily achieved, and seemingly endless, without any real alternatives other than the unsteady signals from the North Sea pirate ships chained to their moorings a few miles from Clacton. So after less than two years, the feast of Parsley Sidings was over. A new dawn would soon bring a new gravy train of BBC TV comedies adapted for the radio, such as Steptoe, Likely Lads and even Dad's Army. This is my personal view. Box 39? What's in it then? House Gang X here, really going for it in the corner. They love this one, it gets up a real sweat. Uh, this is the Mixomatosis DJ Rabbit Mix. Oh, that makes always makes Mike laugh, that one. I don't know why. Why does that one make you laugh, Mike? Is it just the way that uh, Henry's playing? I think it's the speed and the... Uh, it's, it's just so, so, okay. so well, good. Well, let's not let play them anymore because they want more uh, fee. But that's uh, it's very good, isn't it? Now, welcome everyone to listening. And, uh, Ian, I'm going to ask the question direct to the point. Is it okay to lie? Well, the average Briton tells more than ten lies a week with uh, two-fifths claiming fibs are sometimes necessary. Uh, researchers have found that. Almost all Britons have told a lie at some point in their lives, with a quarter saying they will be happy to tell a fib if they think it will not hurt anyone. A recent survey for a well-known online insurance company showed that. Well, do you know what? This survey goes on to say that the most common subject for lies is vices, such as admitting to dishonesty about the price of an item they have bought, lying about how much they drink and fibbing about their eating habits. Almost a third say they had lied uh, about the reason for missing a call, and many have made up a reason for why they were late. I know one student, when I was teaching, who was late, said, he said, um, I couldn't get into my jeans, they were too tight, and he was 20 minutes late. What about that? Couldn't find a shoehorn. Eh? Couldn't find a shoehorn. Jeans horn. <laughs> the survey found that the common porkies are to be untruthful about past relationships, where you were the previous night, and who you were with the night before that. Some 7% say they've lied on sites such as Facebook and Twitter to make themselves seem more interesting. Yeah, and the survey found uh, more women are likely to tell white lies compared to men, with women most likely to lie about how much something costs, and men most likely to fib about, you know what, how much they drink. And thank you to Box39 regular listener Harry Styles for sending in those facts. So after Mike's audition for the new Ausgang Exit Reborn track there, I told you he loved that song. He just can't stop singing it. Anyway, uh, we're now talking about something else. Now, Operation Mincemeat was a World War II deception. As Allied forces were preparing an attack on Sicily in 1943, they wanted to convince the Germans they headed to Greece and Sardinia instead. Could you just pat Mike on the back? He seems to be struggling after that last musical interview. Oh, I, just, I can't help uh, wondering when I'm going to be told whether I'm going to make the Ausgang Exit band, but I'm um, 
we must crack on. The scheme originally Baker, came... Baker, I fooled you, Mike. No, well, I'm too big, too well known. Too anyway, well known. so they took the body of Welsh labourer Lindwyr Michael, who died from eating rat poison, and planted some phony top-secret papers describing a plan to attack Greece and Sardinia on it, as well as a photo of a fake girlfriend, then let it float to an area off Spain where a particular Nazi agent was located. The scheme worked perfectly. The scheme originally came from the mind of Ian Fleming, who later authored the James Bond books, back when he was an assistant to the head of British naval intelligence. Fleming confessed that he borrowed the idea of a dead body with false papers from a spy novel he'd once read. Uh, just to say that I was in a James Bond film, Mike. You were? Yeah, absolutely. What, what did you play there? Doctor No. Operation Fortitude 1943-1944 was a massive deception conducted by the Allies to lead the Germans to believe that the US, British and Canadian armies would be landing near Calais, where France and England were closest to each other. The aim was to make the Germans believe that the Normandy landings in June 1944 and in the south of France two months later in August were mere diversions and that the real landings would take place near Calais so that the German army would concentrate its troops there and so give the Allies time to establish their bridgehead in Normandy. For Operation Fortitude South, the Allies created the fictitious 1st US Army Group, an imaginary force based in southeast Britain. This also helped give the impression that the gathering invasion force was larger than it actually was. Carefully scripted fake radio traffic created by a handful of men herring around the Kent and Sussex countryside in jeeps suggested movements of troops along with decoy equipment including inflatable tanks and aeroplanes and dummy landing craft mimicking the preparations for a large-scale invasion aimed at the part of the French coast nearest to Great Britain. They also deliberately fed the Germans with false secret information via exchanges with neutral countries, spies and double agents. These double agents delivered false information to reinforce this deceit both before and after the Normandy landings. The most famous of these agents, Juan Pujol Garcia or Garbo, invented a whole network of imaginary agents who were supposedly supplying him with information about Allied preparations. This encouraged the Germans to build many bunkers and reinforce the Atlantic Wall along the coast between Dunkirk, Calais and Boulogne. Even after Montgomery's 21st Army Group had executed the Normandy invasion in June, the subterfuge by the fake 1st US Army Group would persist for weeks, hinting to the perplexed enemy that the Normandy landings might have been a diversion intending to draw German focus away from a larger assault that would soon surge across the Strait of Dover. The German authorities apparently clung to their belief that the landing would occur near Calais right up until September 1944, by which time it was too late. And while we here at Cone Radio certainly welcome the success the Allies had in winning the war in Western Europe in 1944 and 1945, it has to be said that Operation Fortitude was pure deception. As one famous BBC TV presenter once said, when a young man at his motel pretended to be not at liberty to say whether or not he had sent a Valentine's card to a female member of the motel staff, which wasn't true, it was a deception. And as he said, a lie is a lie. And Operation Fortitude involved many, many lies. We point this out in the interests of balance. turn the page and time that I'd rearrange just a day or two close my close my close my eyes but I couldn't find a way so 
A lot of North East Essex folk are unaware of the fact that the key members of Fleetwood Mac actually came from the Colchester area. While it's common knowledge that Mick Fleetwood and John McVie came from California in the USA, it comes as some surprise to many Essex music lovers that Lindsay Buckingham was born in Stanway, Stevie Nicks was born in Brightlingsea, and Christine McVie was born in Layer Road, Colchester, under the shadow of the old football stadium. Their 1977 album, Rumours, was actually about the shocking state of affairs with regard to gossip, backstabbing and petty personal vendettas in the offices of Colchester Borough Council in the infamous Rowan House in Sheepen Road, something that almost none of the 40 million people who bought the album realised. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies Housecoming exit there, earning their corn with chocolate sprinkle and the Italian biscuits. Oh, once again, Housecoming exit reborn, our live house band win the day for us, producing top-notch music rooted in the community with this tune from their latest EP, From Stanway to Basildon in Barry's Burger Van. So I hope everyone's having a great time listening. We're having a great time here in the studio. And we'd like to welcome our special guest for actually the show, uh, Red Button, coming up shortly. It's Jill Ball. Hello, Jill. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And I'm glad your bus got here on time. Dan, as we go out, we'll give you back the uh, bus fare. Uh, It's an outgoing exit reborn are paying for it this week. Much obliged. Thanks, guys. No problems. Now, Walter Scott said, Jill, um, I'm sure you've heard this. He said, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And uh, Mike, were they talking about lies? What is a lie? What is what is a lie? Well, a lie has three essential features. First, a lie communicates some information. The liar intends to deceive or mislead. And uh, thirdly, the liar believes that what they are saying is not true. Well, you mentioned deceiving, but um, does that mean, Ian, that all forms of deception are lies? Uh, I think I've got an answer, but you better stick with me on this one. A lie does not have to give false information. In fact, a lie does not have to be told with a negative or malicious intention. White lies are an example of lies told with a good intention. The definition we're using says that what makes a lie a lie is that the liar intends to deceive or at least to mislead the person they are lying to. It says nothing about whether the information given is true or false. So when we said to Jill uh, when she's coming that she'd be able to use the free spa here at Calm Radio Towers, <laughs> was that a lie or a deception? That would depend on whether that spa exists or not. Uh, but it exists in my mind. In which case, Bill, you need therapy. <laughs> Maybe in the spa. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good plan. Now, so, Mike, give me an example then. I'm a bit confused. I'm not a very bright man. When, yeah. when can lying be unintentional? Well, I like this one. Imagine the situation where you tell me you want the last helping of pie, so you lie to me that there is a worm in it. When you later eat that piece of pie, you discover that there really is a worm in it. In this case, nobody is deceived by you, even though you've told what you believe to be an untruth. Oh, so I that? see. So, uh, well, if it's unavoidable, then why is, why is it wrong? Is it is it just ethics or what? 
Oh, lying is bad because a generally truthful world is a good thing. Lying diminishes trust between human beings. Yeah, I mean, I can see that if people generally didn't tell the truth, life would become very difficult as nobody could be trusted and nothing you heard or read could be trusted. You'd have to find everything out for yourself. Yeah, that's very mm. true. Mike, well, is it bad is, then? Yeah, well, lying is bad because it treats those who are lied to as a means to achieve the liar's purpose rather than as a valuable end in themselves. I mean, I've always thought that lying is bad as it makes it difficult for the person being lied to to make a free and informed decision about the matter concerned. Jill, what, what do you think? Well, I think probably lying's bad just because it is a basic moral wrong. Well, I think there's a wonderful, a wonderful statement in which we, we can end this, really, because it seems that deception is all around us, isn't it? We're a culture of liars. We, we've got deceit so deeply ingrained in our psyches, uh, we hardly even notice we're engaging it. There's spam email, isn't there? Deceptive advertising, all those daily pleasantries we don't really mean. Oh, it's great to meet you. Oh, I love that. Oh, you look beautiful in that. It's an omnipresent white noise, isn't it? And we've learned to tune it out. And do you know what? It's time for us to tune out of this Box 39 Lies special show. It's a little-known fact that Tom Bailey, Pete Dodd and John Roog, also known as the Thompson Twins, were the reason why Stanway Rovers enjoyed two seasons in the second tier of English football between 1980 and 1982, and that the team's fall from grace was caused by Bailey, Todd and Roog making themselves available only every other Saturday after they'd had a worldwide hit with this song called Lies in 1982, and touring commitments meant that they were often away from Stanway. <laughs> Bailey and Todd tried to recapture the glory by returning to the Rovers in 1989 after the Thompson Twins were widely seen as being pants, but the two players were past their best. So I am Bill Lawrence. I've been joined on Box 39 this week by Ian Tallentire, Adrian Cohen, Mike Harwood and ever so briefly by Jill Ball, who's going to be joining us uh, later on. Join us all again next time when we open Box 39 once more, but stay tuned to Coal Radio for our sister show, where we do talk to Jill at great length. Red Button is our sister show. That's coming up in a few moments with impromptu, free later evening discussion, great music, and of course, much further chat with our own very special guest, Jill Ball. Now, it is well known that Bill, Ian and Mike have a sweetheart contract with Colm Radio and they are not contractually obliged to follow through on anything they say, nor to make any sense, nor indeed to broadcast anything that's any good. So it's left to me to follow up on the we will tell six lies thing they mentioned and at the end they will reveal what those lies were etc etc. They had no intention of doing that. It was a lie. A bonus lie. Well, here are the six. One, Cone Radio did not pay Jill Ball's bus fare, but they did pay Adrian's airfares last week. Two, the tight jeans that took 20 minutes to put on belonged to Mike and not one of his students. Mike was wearing those jeans this evening. Three, Bill was not Dr. No in the James Bond film of that name. That was Ian. Bill was Ratso Rizzo in Midnight Cowboy. Bill is a bit rough, you see and 849 speed daters in the Colchester area can't all be wrong. That's why he's on radio, not TV. Four, there is no copy machine in the musicology area, but there is a fully stocked minibar and converted Special K Pez dispenser. And finally, six, Donna from Norwich is not, and I quote, all over the place, as Mike suggested. His lawyer will now take this up with her lawyer.
This is a poem that Adrian wrote about his mother, who passed away on the 23rd of March, and is followed by a song that they both loved. White horses whisper on the sea and Seagulls are clinging to the breeze There's a straight line where steamships meet the sky Where waves are welling like mother's teary eyes And I guess they'll break forevermore On this green and rocky shore Mothers were clinging to their flesh Farewells were whispered and all were blessed The seagulls were screaming Now they're bound for America Taken by the waves And I guess they're gone forevermore From this starved and tearful shore Don't rush me, she said the steam can still be seen. White horses roll my babies back to me. Burning turf is crackling, sickly sweet. Her bruised cattle bruise some bitter leaves. The steepling rocks of Leitrim and Donegal peering westward like the mothers who gave their all and now they're alone forevermore with their blood on distant shores. Don't rush me, she said. I hear the seagulls scream. White horses roll my blessed babies back to me. Don't rush me, she said. The steam can still be seen. And white horses whisper things to me.